0: At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles, using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for
1: this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A T L A S S I A N.com. Atlassian.
0: From cafe.com, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm your host, Preet Barara.
2: Well, this is what you go through to get an interview with somebody who is hard to get. You know, if you were doing an interview with Castro, you'd go through his version of this. With Saddam Hussein, you went through his version of this. With Carlos the Jackal, I'm sure there was some version of this. But this was the Bin Laden version. That's my guest on the show today, John Miller. John is
0: the Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism at the NYPD. So this is Episode 4 of Stay Tuned. We're now on our regular schedule coming out every Thursday. I want to thank all my listeners. I hear and see you recommending it to your friends. And keep the reviews coming. It really does help spread the word. Let's get to some of your questions. Hi, Preet. My question is, how do you feel about Paul Giamatti's portrayal of the fictional you on Billions? So my parents are very proud that there was going to be a show about, you know, the United States Attorney. Because most shows on television are about what? They're about the DA, the district attorney. And I know a lot of people don't know the difference. But to us, in federal law enforcement, there's a big difference. So they went around telling all their friends there's going to be the show. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit based on Preet, but it's a United States attorney. is a great, you know, noted, as I say to people, noted Indian-American actor Paul Giamatti is the United States attorney. And they're very excited. They tell everyone. I think Paul Giamatti is an excellent actor. I think he's one of the best around. We had a lovely dinner before he began filming. And then it comes time for the first episode a couple of years ago. And if you haven't seen it, the opening scene of Billions... Uh, and I'm not plugging the show, because I don't think that's appropriate. But it begins with the aforementioned United States attorney, played by Paul Giamatti, not wearing a shirt, on the floor, tied up, and a stiletto heel comes into the scene. And you realize it's an S&M scene, uh, which I'm not going to explain for those of you who don't know what that is. And the, uh, the, the, the lady in the scene uh, is smoking a cigarette, and she puts out the cigarette on Paul Giamatti's chest, And then to take away the burn, she does so by means of a bodily function. Suffice to say, my parents have never mentioned the show again.
1: Hi, Preet. Uh, My name is Caleb, and I'm calling from Redding, California. Um, Listen, as a result of this election, I think a lot of us have become educated in the laws regarding presidential ethics, you know, potential conflicts of interest and accountability. And I think... I at least struggle to understand what constitutes a breach of law versus a breach of norms with regard to presidential conflicts. Uh, I was surprised to know that a president has all these avenues to potentially enrich him or herself personally, for instance, you know, owning a hotel that clearly benefits from his position as president or traveling to his own properties at taxpayer expense. Um, are there any legal or legislative avenues to potentially reform or restrict this sort of presidential behavior? And if so, what might some of the downsides or complications be to doing that?
0: Caleb, that's a really great question. And it, and it actually is a question that I've been thinking about deeply. And what people, I think, are beginning to discover based on the aggressiveness with which this president is you know, conducting himself, you know, what are the things that presidents can get away with? And I think an important question that that I want to address in the coming months and years is the degree to which, you know, soft norms that we've come to appreciate on the part of presidents need to be turned into hard laws. And that's not something that's just specific to Donald Trump. It's been the case throughout our history. So, for example, George Washington set a norm by deciding to only serve two terms. There's nothing limiting him to two terms. He decided he didn't want to be a king. And after two terms, he stepped down. And every president since then, until FDR, did the same thing. Now, FDR decided to run four times. Incredibly popular president, uh, remains one of the most revered presidents in our history, and yet the people of the United States decided that they were going to turn the soft norm that George Washington had established back at the beginning of the Republic into a hard law. Not just a hard law, but a constitutional amendment to limit for all time in the future presidents to just two terms. And and that was done after a president who actually saved us from the brink of annihilation in World War II in many ways, and yet we still thought that he had overreached by going four terms. And so I think it's a great question to consider all the ways Congress and the public, either by passing statutes, setting regulations, or even constitutional amendments, will claw back lots of the things that Donald Trump seems to be getting away with. So at the moment, one reform in this regard that people are talking about is how to take away from the president the absolute authority to fire special counsel Mueller. Now, I don't know if that's going to fly as a constitutional matter, but there's a bipartisan bill that's in the Senate right now. Another example that you may have been thinking about or heard of is a requirement to make presidential candidates release their tax returns. It's something that Donald Trump in the modern era is the first person to flout. So the bottom line is this presidency, like a lot of presidencies, is going to have a lasting impact on the country, but it's also going to have a lasting impact on the presidency itself because there are going to be a lot of people in Congress and elsewhere who want to change some of the rules and make mandatory what so far has been optional. On a related matter. I got this question on Twitter from David Bartley at Bartlesome. It's a good name. Uh, And he asks, would special counsel Mueller have the authority to request Trump's tax returns from the IRS? The answer to that question is yes, absolutely. You know, he is a federal prosecutor, like the United States attorney is, for the purposes of the special counsel. And like anyone else in the federal system, you have to make a showing. You just can't do it by subpoena. You have to make a showing to a federal judge to get a tax order because tax returns are among the most sacrosanct documents that relate to a person. And we don't allow in our system, people to just willy-nilly get them. But you have to make a showing uh, of relevance directly to a judge who has to order that the tax returns be turned over by the IRS. But he certainly has that authority, yes. And I would expect he would use it. But the other thing, David, you're probably wondering is just because Mueller gets to see them, doesn't mean you get to see them or the public gets to see them. And there are lots and lots of cases where we obtained people's tax information. And that information never saw the light of day because it was not appropriate for that to happen. So given what I read about how the case is in part about complex financial transactions, I do expect Robert Mueller will obtain tax return information, but I don't necessarily know if we'll ever find out about it. So now it's time for my conversation with John Miller. He's been at the top of my list for a long time to interview on the podcast since even before I started taping this podcast. And part of the reason is that he's had one of the most interesting careers I've ever seen, both as an award-winning journalist and also as a law enforcement official, and he's moved kind of seamlessly in and out of both of those roles. He's also someone who's not only interviewed Osama bin Laden himself as a journalist, but also has spent the last few years trying to keep New York safe from terrorism. My conversation with John after this quick break. Stay tuned.
3: Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile, If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact-check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores, and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: At the Coca-Cola company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, our bottles might still look the same, but some of them can be remade in a whole new way. Using 100% recycled plastic, New bottles made using no new plastic except the caps and labels. You'll be seeing more of these new bottles in more places, and that's thanks to you. Because when we get more bottles back, we can use less new plastic. Learn how our bottles are made to be remade at madetoberemade.org. John Miller, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So I've been wanting to have you on for weeks, and you agreed graciously to come on some time ago. And I should tell our listeners that we're actually recording on Monday afternoon, October 2nd, and I have a lot of things to get to with you, because you've had a very interesting dual life in some ways as a journalist and as a law enforcement official. But as we sit here right now, the news is coming in, you know, bit by bit about the tragedy in Las Vegas. And obviously, you know, when when things like that happen, the mass shooting and, and the, the current news, and this may change by the time this airs, more than fifty people have been killed, over four hundred people have gone to the hospital. This is the kind of thing you dread in New York, where you have an active shooter. What happens? How does NYPD go into action?
2: So from the minute it happens, we start gathering information. What happened? The who, what, when, where, and how. Then when we get, you know, offender information, who's the suspect? And what are they connected to? What's their social media platforms? What can we learn about them? Is there a claim of responsibility? And then at the same time we're doing this simultaneously, we're measuring that against New York. Do we have a similar venue? Do we have a similar event? Um, Do we have a similar threat? Does this person have any connections to New York, connections to people in New York? There's a concert event today in Times Square. There's another one on Friday. Um, We've already built out the policing for that and the counterterrorism overlay. But today we were paging back through that, uh, looking at... um, among the two thousand long guns that the NYPD has in the hands of trained officers, these are these are officers. You see them out there with the uh, the heavy vests and the rifles um, and the helmets. Those are deployed based on the threat stream of that day, and we'll shift those resources around um, every day. All of this fits into the threat stream where we are constantly adjusting.
0: Can I ask you what I think is a question that a lot of people have when these kinds of things happen, and it's kind of a conundrum. And it's often the case, we don't know if this is going to be true in the Las Vegas situation, and maybe we'll find out by the time this episode airs, but often it's the case that the person who engaged in this violence, the Sarnaia brothers fall into this category, these guys were known to the FBI, or to the local police, as people to keep an eye on. But there was not enough to detain them or to arrest them. And then the question that the public asks is, well, why didn't you do something about it? Now, on the other side of the coin... If the police and and the FBI and federal officers begin to take actions against someone who who hasn't committed a crime, they say, you know, you're overreaching. How do you strike the balance? When someone comes across your desk as a person of interest or somebody to be worried about, but they haven't done this yet, they haven't shot anybody yet, what do you do about that guy?
2: So, as you've very well framed it, this is emerging as the pattern. Now, part of this is the great law of unintended consequences, which is If you get very good at collecting intelligence and threat information and then sifting through it, you're going to end up hearing from the public, from tipsters, from informants about a lot of people, and you're going to be investigating them. The upside to that is when you get a piece of threat information, you're able to interdict that by focusing on the right people, figuring out the network, stopping the threat. There's 22 plots that we can talk about. Um, that were either hatched in or targeting New York City since 9-11 that have been prevented um, in almost every case through this kind of work. The flip side is, if you look at the Boston Marathon bombing, they were on the radar. If you looked at the Pulse nightclub shooter in Orlando, he was on the radar. If you looked at the Chelsea bomber right here down the street from this studio in Manhattan, he was on the radar. So if you're doing this right, when something does happen, there's a pretty high likelihood that that's going to be somebody you heard about or looked at for a time, and this is where where you see that conundrum, which is if they're not committing a crime, the attorney general guidelines, the FBI's domestic operations guide, the NYPD's handshoe guidelines, all say you cannot investigate someone uh, with the absence of the possibility of criminal activity forever. The other issue there is we don't have the resources to put people under surveillance permanently, so. There was an individual in the Bronx who was radicalized and talking about violent things, but he wasn't doing anything. And of course, you always kind of run into that, that debate over, is this protected speech, even though it seems to exhort violence, or is this support of a terrorist organization? And in that case, we also determined he seemed to be emotionally disturbed. So there's a case where we engaged with him. And we developed a relationship with him between him and the detective. We engaged with his parents.
0: When you say you engaged, we meaning do, we, you, you, just, you, you shot pool with the guy? What, what did no, you No, we had
2: conversations. Um, we visited him at home. We visited him at work. We created a relationship with his family. We talked to his doctors and therapists and talked about what we were seeing and hearing. And we pushed that individual towards more help, more supervision because he seemed in need of it. My point is, this is not altogether uncommon, because what we find is there are people who are ideologically committed to violence, and then there are people who are emotionally disturbed to some degree, who want to take a violent theme and adopt that as an excuse for actions they want to or plan to take.
0: For self-aggrandizement or some other reason. Right. But do you think that the guidelines are good and just and fair, or do you think that you should have more leeway to interdict at an earlier stage?
2: Every intelligence guy I know would say, I would like more leeway because I hate walking away from a target when I feel there may still be something there. But more leeway to do what? More leeway to do everything. Here's what I say. To do everything. <laughs> yeah. Here's what, everybody wants more leeway because it makes their job easier. What I say is, those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. And those who study policing know we don't study history. So if you look at the history of intelligence in policing, you see the FBI's intelligence program that began under J. Edgar Hoover called COINTELPRO ended up with very few rules and almost no guidelines and ended up in a scandal for the FBI, ended up with agents being charged with crimes, ended up with people in grand juries. Having rules and structure, even rules that make your job harder sometimes, those rules are your friend. We've learned over and over again that intelligence collection in a free democratic society without strict rules always ends up running aground. Yeah, so I mean, so we, have, we have rules I think we can live with. Um, yeah, so
0: rules are not only your friend if you're in the police. They're the friend of fair and open society as
2: well. Uh, and I believe that we strike that balance.
0: Do you have a view, John? Some people think it's never a good time to talk about regulation of guns. But as someone who's been in the NYPD and a spokesperson for law enforcement at the FBI and at the NYPD, do you think there's a role for police officers to speak out about the regulation
2: of guns? I think there is. You know, if you look at this conversation, it's been stuck for a long time. You've got a powerful gun lobby. You've got members of Congress who um, benefit from that tremendously. And you have very little progress in gun laws. But as I argued before a congressional committee some time ago, I always thought, well, when members of Congress start getting shot, that'll change. But Gabby Giffords was shot down in a parking lot at a campaign stop. Um, Congressman Scalise was recently severely wounded in a similar incident. So we know that's not the breaker there. I thought, well, you know, when we go with our families to the mall or the movies and we're being massacred in numbers there, that... That would be the breaking point. And we'd get serious about this conversation, but we had a shooting at at the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, during the Batman premiere, where women and children and men uh, were killed when they were out with their families to have fun. And that conversation lasted a very short time and resulted in nothing. The governor tried his own gun laws there and was run out in the next election for it. And then I thought, when they massacre our babies in their kindergarten classes, our little children... That will be when we ask ourselves, can we continue with this madness? But that happened, and nothing changed there either. So I guess we know who we are and what's important to us. If our guns are more important than our elected officials, more important than our families at the mall, more important than our children in school, even when they're in the hands of people who shouldn't have them, shouldn't have been able to obtain them, people who are emotionally disturbed, uh, where that's been documented, if that's who we are, I think we need to ask why. I think we should all be asking a question, what makes sense? And it's it's not the question we're asking. So what does make sense? What makes sense is we should probably, as a civilized country, not be able to go to gun shows and buy assault weapons anonymously, We should probably not be able to buy weapons over the internet that can be easily converted with a quick set of tools. We should probably not be able to elect whether to contribute to the database that's supposed to keep guns out of the hands of people who have been adjudicated in court as to be mentally disturbed. I think there's a whole lot of things that would make sense that we're avoiding because the other side of this argument insists that bringing up any one of these things is the first chink in the armor, the first crack that will lead to black helicopters and the New World Order and, and uh, the government rounding up uh, everybody's guns. That's just not true. We have to ask ourselves after Las Vegas, what we should have asked after Newtown, which we should have asked after Aurora, which we should have asked after Columbine. I mean, how far back do you want to go? Is this who we are? And if it is, because it is, Breed. Is this who we want to be as a country still?
0: So pivoting from what happened in Las Vegas, you're both an award-winning journalist and you're also a police official. So what the hell are you? Are you a journalist or are you a cop?
2: If you look at what are the professional requirements, as a journalist, it was when something happened or was about to happen, you had to figure out what it was, where it happened, who was behind it, what it meant, and then be able to explain Why is this important or not to uh, your bosses who are the public? That's about blasting out information to the masses. On the other hand, when I worked in the intelligence community um, as the head of intelligence analysis for uh, a number of agencies that we coordinated at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence... They said, well, now we're on the secret side and everything's different. I said, well, how do we work? And they said, we've got to find out either what happened or what's about to happen, who's behind it, what it means, why it's important, and be able to explain that to a small group of people. The disciplines turned out to be extraordinarily similar. I get that.
0: Yeah. But it's a very strange revolving door through which you have passed, you know, multiple times. And I get what you're saying about the disciplines being similar. But if that's so, how come you're the only guy I know who's
2: done what you've done? Um, because I'm an odd duck. So my resume would go from Channel 5 News to NBC News to the NYPD, where Bill Bratton, um, the commissioner from 20 years ago, brought me in to do something very logical. Let me get a guy out of the press who covers the police to do public affairs in the department. Knows the department, knows the press. It's a good mix. I went from the NYPD to ABC News and then to the LAPD, from there, I went to the FBI in public affairs, then to the director of national intelligence in analysis, um, and then to CBS News, covering the very fields I had just left, and then back to the NYPD. So it's a perfectly normal resume, if you think about right, it. Maybe you should start a podcast. By the way, you have a lovely voice,
0: I was saying, before you came in. Maybe you could read my ads for me. <laughs>
2: I would be happy <laughs> you <could> try, to. <laughs> just,
0: just, just, just try this first, just for me. Uh, just say, stay tuned, supported by stamps.com.
2: By who.com? Stamps.com. Stay tuned, supported by Stamps.com. See, that's so much better. That's so much better than what I do. If you need me to do some of the wraparounds, I'm, <laughs> I'm like an all-purpose guest.
0: We're going we're gonna to cut this from the final episode, I think. You make me look terrible. <laughs> 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 I've been working on my voice, John. So I want to talk about some of the things you did as a journalist that I think will be surprising to folks. You landed some of the biggest, most impressive interviews that one can land, and not just with, you know, with law enforcement officials, but with bad guys. Some of the worst bad guys. You interviewed John Gotti. What was that like?
2: So, for background, John Gotti commits the hit, the murder, the gangland murder of Paul Castellano, and then takes over the Gambino crime family. Right in front of the, the Sparks. Right in front of the Sparks. Exactly. Sparks Steakhouse on the east side of Manhattan, December sixteenth, nineteen eighty-five, at about five forty-five p.m. Then he emerges as this different character. Which and is... and also be
0: clear, this was in, within the Gambino family.
2: Right. So, with Gotti, um, there was this public fascination with him. And I thought, you know, we really have to try and get him to talk to us. And every time we approached him, he had, like, two guys with him, giant people, Bobby Boriello and, you know, another person. These were, like, football player-sized people who were members of the Gambino crime family. They would advance on us. And next thing you know, the camera person would be on the ground. I'd be knocked over. And, you know, the film, when we went to look at it, was a lot of, like, the sky spinning around. And then one day I was watching television, and I saw Geraldo Rivera. So Geraldo Rivera has got a hidden camera, and he walks up to John Gotti, and the two big guys move up, and they intercept him. Gotti does an about-face, goes the other way, and by the time Geraldo Rivera knows what's going on, it's all over. Gotti's escaped. He didn't get anything. And only by sitting on TV and watching someone else try what we kept failing at, did I, it was like a football play. The two linebackers move forward. They intercept this guy. Gotti drops back, faints left, goes into the social club. He's gone.
0: Wait a minute. So you watch Geraldo Rivera, of all people, screw it up and then come up with a better play for yourself?
2: Exactly. I, I,
0: I love that so much.
2: What we did was we did a diagram. Gotti's lair was the Ravenite Social Club, 247 Mulberry Street. He would come out with who he wanted to have a meeting with because he assumed, and rightly so, that the club was bugged by the FBI. And he would literally walk them around the block. Right, A walk and talk. A walk and talk. So we said, okay, so if he comes out here and he walks to the corner, when he reaches the corner, that's the farthest he is on that block. But when he makes the left and then goes down the next block to come all the way around the block, by mid-block of that next block— He is the very farthest away he's going to get from the refuge of the club, which means if you're going to stop him, that's when he's got the longest to run. So we put a camera crew a block south, a camera crew a block north, and then I had a camera crew in the middle of the block in a gas station across the street. And when he came around the block the first time, it was with like 20 guys, and I said, not going to (laughs) work. Got on the two-way radio, said red light, red light, nobody move. When he came around the next time... He had Sammy the Bull Gravano, who at that point was the consigliere, and Frankie Lacassio, who at that point was the underboss. And I said, well, here it is. It's John Gotti, the consigliere, and the underboss. It's the administration of the Gambino crime family, the three of them. And Geraldo Rivera was nowhere to be seen? Nowhere to be seen. Okay. So I gave the signal to go, and one car raced up Lafayette and one raced down Lafayette, and we came across. And it was just like the football play. Gotti sees the first cameras heading towards him, the two guys step forward, they intercept the camera. Gotti turns around and walks straight into the second camera, now with no coverage. And as he goes to cross the street, he walks right into me with the third camera, and we start to ask him questions.
0: And, and you literally do you have a do you have a microphone in his face? How how aggressive are you being with this guy so, who, by the way, murders people for a living?
2: <laughs> Everybody has a microphone on the end of one of those long poles. Right. Um and The math question here was, if you have two guys whose job it is to block the cameras, but you have three cameras, there's going to be one camera that's always not blocked. So if you edit your way around the cameras, whichever one they're blocking, you just cut to the other one. And this goes down the block, this caterpillar of arms and legs and wires and people trying to block cameras. And I get to ask Gotti, are you the boss of the Gambino crime family? Did you authorize the murder of Paul Castellano? Are you this? Are you that? And he's saying, you know, why are you doing this? I always treated you with respect, John. You know, this isn't very respectable. You're not being a very nice guy. And I said, I'm just doing my job. And he said, you're not behaving yourself. And at some point it seemed like, well, he's not going to really answer the questions, but we have shown that, you know, there's a conversation going and we attempted to ask him these things. So I waved the camera crews off and Gotti says, what was all that about? And I said, well, every time we try to talk to you, you know, your people knock down my people, and that's not treating me like a gentleman. And he said, well, what was this? I said, well, this is how we're going to have to do it from now. We're just going to have to bring more people. And he said, don't ever do this again. You want to ask me a question? I'll answer the question. My people will never touch your people from here on out. And so there became this odd detente where I could walk up to John Gotti with a camera crew, ask him whatever the questions were that day, he would give some quip or some type of non-answer answer. Um, but the end result was there was a lot of footage when I was at NBC of me and John Gotti walking around the street seemingly conversing. People actually got the idea that we were friends. Were you? No, we were never friends. He was a gangster and I was a reporter. And I tried to never forget that.
0: So John Gotti is about as, as bad a guy as you can come across, responsible for untold numbers of murders all kinds of crimes, as has been well-documented at trials and elsewhere. But in your career, you've actually interviewed someone not only worse, but a lot worse. Yes. So it's 1998. Osama bin Laden has uh, not become a household name, as he later became known as the face of evil. And you're a journalist at ABC, Mm -hmm. and you set about trying to interview this person. Some months before, as we alleged out of the Southern District of New York and proved that he was responsible as the head of al-Qaeda, which people didn't know about yet, responsible for the bombing of the American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. 224 people died. And just a few months before that, you said about trying to get an interview with bin Laden. How how did that come about, and why were you doing that?
2: So, it all starts um, over dinner at Campagnola on First Avenue on the east side. Where it always does. Where it always does. Brajol with rigatoni and meatballs. By the way, why anybody how you, how who How would... do you
0: remember every meal you've ever had? <laughs> I think you're making some of this up.
2: I didn't get to be this size by skipping meals. But, you know, it was very rare that they had Brajol, so it was that special that night. So I had gone with basically kind of the components of the Manhattan Homicide Squad, and we were enjoying this great meal. And a report of a shooting and a hotel downtown came in, and we were going to rush through the meal and— go down there. But then it turned out that it was the shooting of a rabbi, and the rabbi was Mayer Kahani. This was the leader of the Jewish Defense League, a former member of the Knesset, a radical kind of uh, right-wing Jewish figure who was kind of a lightning rod in a lot of ways. But he'd been gunned down, and they had arrested an individual at the scene trying to escape named el Said Noseir. When that investigation touched on the potential of that being a conspiracy— It got to be a very interesting case about who was behind this assassination. By 1993, a lot of the people that the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force looked at and the NYPD looked at in the Kahani assassination turned out to be the people behind the first bombing of the World Trade Center. Through these cases, there was an echo in the background. The name Bin Laden had come up and come up and come up, seldom but persistently as the guy who may have paid for No Defense Fund, who may have financed the World Trade Center bombing. But the question was, you know, Bin Laden was the equivalent in Saudi Arabia of like one of the Rockefellers. You know, he was the son of a very rich guy who had um, vast business interests in building buildings and making highways. So what was he? Was he an operational terrorist leader running a network? Was he just a, a dilettante who was a financier who believed in the cause? And I wanted to know. And I present this story as we've got to do a story on this guy. And Chris Isham and Terry Lickstein, the two senior producers kind of on the investigative side, said, well, why don't we go find him and talk to him? And that just seemed implausible to me. I said, you know, here's a guy who's hiding in a cave in Afghanistan being guarded by, you know— hundreds of Mujahideen soldiers. I mean, I don't think we call his agent up and say, hey, we'd like to to do an interview.
0: You, You said your first reaction was that it was implausible. Not whether it's a right or wrong thing to do. And I, you know, with respect to John Gotti, that's one thing. But was there any discussion at all or worry at all about the idea of giving platform on national American television to somebody who was believed to be responsible for the deaths of Americans and others?
2: Not in the slightest bit. Well because explain Preet, that, because not everyone gets that. Okay, so so Preet, this is um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I get it. But, okay. And explain that to everyone. In the mind of a journalist as opposed to a law enforcement person, this is a total no-brainer. Let's do both heads. My law enforcement head says this guy's a dangerous, shadowy terrorist leader, and we're closing in on him with this case. Let's keep all this secret and not say anything cuz we don't want to give him a platform any exposure or do anything that will bring more attention to our secret case. And that's that a valid makes,
0: and that's a valid makes perfect consideration sense for law enforcement guy.
2: Right. Let's flip to my journalist head. Wait a minute. Are you saying to me that there is a rich guy from Saudi Arabia who has sanctuary in Afghanistan who has blown up the World Trade Center in New York City, plotted to kill his holiness the pope? has looked at an assassination plan against President Clinton, was going to blow up dozens of airliners over Pacific routes, potentially killing thousands of people, many of them Americans, and that he's been operating this way for years, and nobody among the American people knows this name or the danger he presents or whether their government is doing enough to get him? From the journalist standpoint, it is a total no-brainer. We had to put a spotlight on this individual, describe the threat, and warn the world about a guy who, if left unchecked, might come back and blow up the World Trade Center again, which he did. So you were not seeing this as giving a platform to a bad guy,
0: but alerting the world about a bad guy.
2: Right. I understand both views, um, but actually, looking back at how history unfolded, only one of them makes sense. So let's go back to how you got the interview. How did you get the interview? So at ABC, the investigative unit had a lot of contacts, and they contacted a, a former government intelligence official who had great contacts um, in that world and said, if you were looking for bin Laden, who would you? where would you start? And he referred us to an individual in northern Virginia, of all places, who was kind of in the seams between journalism and advocacy who had a blog and a website involved in a group that did some, some publications and fundraising for Hamas and things like that. And that individual put us in touch with a guy in London who uh, was basically an agent of al-Qaeda. He said, write a letter. You wrote a letter? So we wrote a letter, Dear Osama bin Laden. Actually, we were told to write it to bin Laden's uh, deputy, Mohammed Atef former Egyptian policeman, noted terrorist in his own right. Dear Mr. Atef, we'd like to interview uh, Osama bin Laden uh, about his views of matters as they unfold in the Middle East. And, you know, signed it and sent it. And it went to a fax machine in London, and then it was faxed to Afghanistan. And basically, we were told, come to London. And we were interviewed by um, two people. You you were pre-interviewed. We were vetted
0: by, in, by Bin Laden's people.
2: By Bin Laden's people. To see people. if it was okay for you to meet Bin Laden. Right. And they wanted to know what's this interview about and how long is it going to be and what's it going to be on and, you know, what kind of things are you going to talk about. And you were prepared to jump through all those hoops because it was a big interview. Well, this is what you go through to get a, an interview with somebody who is hard to get. You know, if you were doing an interview with Castro, you'd go through his version of this. With Saddam Hussein, you went through his version of this. With Carlos the Jackal, I'm sure there was some version of this. But this was the Bin Laden version. So we spoke to those two people, and they said, go to Islamabad, Pakistan. And when you get there, tell us how to find you. So we went to the Marriott in Islamabad. and When is this? This is in early May of 1998. We check into Islamabad, and right then, India and Pakistan get in a nuclear showdown, and then the entire world media shows up, and terrain, they're all To rain on, on your parade. So, I don't know about that. I mean, first I thought, these people are all going to say, what are you guys doing there? But then when we said, we're doing here what you're doing here, it actually gave us plenty of cover. Okay. So, now take us to when you actually
0: go and meet with bin Laden himself.
2: So, this is um, planes, trains, and automobiles. I mean, we are taken to airports and shoved onto airplanes where we don't know where they're going. Um, we get off in Peshawar, and then the next day are put on another plane to a place called Banu, which is basically a hut in the middle of an airfield. Um, are, are, you, are you nervous or scared
0: at all by all this travel?
2: Well, what, we're, what is dawning on us is we are literally driving back into history. We've gone from big cities with computers and hotels and running water and electricity to primitive places where, you know, there's, you know, things being pulled by on carts and, and no electricity to total barren lands where there aren't even roads and we're driving through s- stream beds. So just
0: like one Holiday Inn Express.
2: Right. Okay. So it's kind, of, it's kind of like, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore and there's no way to call the mothership.
0: You don't have, com- you don't have communication ability?
2: No, we have nothing. That was taken from you? Well, this was part of al-Qaeda's operational security, um, taking us through the tribal areas, getting us farther and farther away from contact. So you gave
0: up all your phones, and you're being taken from place to place. How many of you were there?
2: There was the cameraman, Rick Bennett, myself, and um, the fixer from Northern Virginia who had arranged the contact was kind of along as our interlocutor and translator. So you're just putting your
0: lives in the hands of these al-Qaeda guys?
2: Yes. To get the interview. Yes.
0: And you had no weapons? No. So how long did the trip take?
2: It took, you know, kind of a week on the ground in Islamabad and then um, two or three days on the road uh, before we ended up on a mountaintop and were introduced to... And mountaintop where? In Afghanistan. Mm-hmm.
0: And you you don't know precisely where?
2: Uh, today, I could probably tell you it was near Kandahar. There were three Al Qaeda camps, kind of in a triangle there, and I believe it was one of them.
0: Okay, so you show up at the camp.
2: So we meet uh, Ayman al who who is now the head of Al Qaeda, uh, but then was Bin Laden's defu- deputy.
0: Was Zawahri known to you then?
2: No. And you know, Mohammed tef plays to his part as the former policeman. He's the security guy. He takes our stuff, goes through everything. Um, he's not very friendly. Zawahiri so says, um, you know, thank you for coming. Um, you know, we're looking forward to your chat with Mr. Bin Laden. Um, in what language? In English. Okay. He's an Egyptian, um, but an educated pediatrician um, who became a terrorist. We were searched by Abu Jandal, uh, Bin Laden's personal bodyguard, and Salim Hamdan, his driver, Rick Bennett and I, and our, our fixer. We were thrown in the back of a truck where we drove for hours. We were stopped at checkpoints. Some checkpoints opened fire from the side of the road. And by the time we got up to the top of this mountain, then there was a big scene. Lights, generators, everybody who had been along the way was somehow in that crowd of, you know, people in a big circle, the the guys who picked us up at the hotel in Islamabad, and the guys who took us across the Afghan border and Bin Laden arrives in this motorcade and everybody opens fire into the sky with tracer rounds. And I'm thinking on one side, why are they putting on this big show? I believe they'd actually kind of staged this whole thing uh, because they were just beginning to get an understanding of television. Take us to the moment
0: when you first speak to Bin Laden.
2: Well, he comes across in this giant, you know, phalanx of bodyguards shooting their guns in the air. Um, And then I go down into this little hut, kind of dug into the ground. Um, And I'm introduced to Bin Laden. And he sits down. He's wearing his green army jacket. He's got a shawar kameez. He kind of sits down cross-legged. He props his AK-47 up behind him. Um, He puts a red blanket with black stripes kind of across his lap. He walked in with a cane and seemed to be kind of gaunt and feeble, like he had a fever. Um, He was coughing a little bit and took uh, drinks regularly from a glass of water.
0: And what did you make of him?
2: Um, He was not what I was expecting. Um, You know, having covered terrorism in New York and known the blind shake, I expected somebody who would be screaming and yelling and pounding the table. And here was this very tall, skinny guy who, when I began to start asking questions, was answering in this very kind of soft um, almost melodic uh, voice that they were not translating back to me. You didn't know what he was saying. I had no idea. And I was struck by the idea that his answers seemed to be very long and detailed. Did you blow up the World Trade Center? Did you know Ramzi Youssef, the mastermind of that plot? Did you, you know, are you worried about being captured or killed? And he'd go on for a couple of minutes. So I thought, well, this is either complete palaver or it's very interesting. Um, but he kept looking at the translator as if the translator was going to translate. But the translator had his instructions, and he only translated the questions. So I made eye contact with Bin Laden and started to nod up and down as if I understood. And I never broke the eye contact. I would nod again. Okay, yeah, uh-huh. Uh-huh you know, hand gestures, everything to show that I was following this so that I could keep them focused on me, which is how the audience would expect to see the interview. And, you know, when it was over, I went back to our fixer in the back and I said, could you hear any of it? He said, I heard most of it. And I said, what did he say? And he said, we need to get the tapes and get out of here. And I'm like, well, what? He said, we have a big story. He declared war in America he said, I predict a black day for America, after which nothing will be the same. This will be greater than our battle with the Russians, referring to the war in Afghanistan in the in, in the late 70s and 80s. Um, and he said, you will only understand this when you bring back the bodies in coffins and in boxes in your shameful defeat. And I said, well, when he was saying this, what was I doing? He said, you were nodding in agreement, um, which, which was just because I was trying to know what keep he was him— saying. So how do you how do you how you, no you feel about that? Interviewing a guy part? who's
0: so you're sitting there, you're interviewing a guy you know to be evil, and and then you find out he was actually projecting even more evil and violence, and you were part of getting that message out.
2: I feel really good about that, Preet. If a guy who has already tried to commit several bombings, who's planning more, who's already financed a terrible attack in New York City. Is declaring war on America and the American public doesn't know that, that means the government um, is not under the pressure of public scrutiny. And at the time, you could argue, well, the government was operating in secret and they could have, would have, should have got him. But, you know, that was a multi billion dollar intelligence community that um, continued to not get him for a long time, even under the pressure of public scrutiny. So, I don't have a single nanosecond of second thoughts about why that was important to get out. And I don't think that anybody rewinding history after we saw how everything turned out could have questioned whether that was a good thing. America needed to be warned about Osama bin Laden.
0: On that note, John Miller, thank you. Thank you for your service, both as a journalist
2: and as a law enforcement official. And thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Preet. This was um, interesting and fun. Thank you, sir.
0: So here we are at the end of the show, and I want to talk for a minute about a new story from the past week that really hit me. You know, two things have been going on this week. One, the awful, tragic news of violence, the story we hear too many times out of Las Vegas on this occasion, uh, but also the start of the Supreme Court term. And a story from The Washington Post written by John Woodrow Cox last week really struck me. It's a story about a young woman named Tiffany Wright. Now, Tiffany Wright didn't grow up with much. And when she was young and the crack epidemic was flaring up in major cities around the country, her father, when she was seven, came to the door one day and was shot to death. And so she had a kind of traumatic childhood. And it affected her in lots of different ways. But if you read the story in the Washington Post, it describes how this young girl, Tiffany Wright, went on to do amazing things. She went on to the University of Maryland, And she had dreams of becoming a lawyer, but then those dreams fell by the wayside. She got married, she had a kid, and became, at one point, a paralegal in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore. And when she was there, according to the article, it rekindled her interest in becoming a lawyer. So she went to Georgetown, and there she really found her calling. And she performed amazingly well, graduated in the top 5% of her class, was a member of the Georgetown Law Journal, which is an impressive feat. She then applied to become a clerk on the Supreme Court of the United States of America. To give you some sense of how difficult that is, there are about 30,000 law students who graduate every year. There are only 36 spots on the Supreme Court, four clerks for every Supreme Court justice. It is just about the hardest job you can get in the law. In fact, it is the hardest job you can get in the law. And she applied, and she got the call one morning to interview with Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She did the interview, she got the job, and last year she served as a clerk on the court, And let me just read to you the the final part of the article. It says, on her first day in the nation's most important courtroom, this is what Tiffany Wright could say. She was the only clerk who was a mother, the only one who was African-American, the only one who had grown up in Southeast Washington. And on that day, Wright knew how her father would feel. I thought that was a story worth sharing. So I just want to give a shout out to Tiffany Wright and wish her luck in her legal career. Thanks again to my guest, John Miller, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Thanks to everybody who already has. Don't forget, if you have questions about news, politics, or justice, I want to answer them. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara. Or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. And if you forget, the phone number is in the episode description every week. Stay tuned as presented by CAFE and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle and Jeff Eisenman. We have new episodes coming for you every Thursday. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.